Please turn with me in your Bibles to Job chapter 6. Our text is Job chapter 6. And our text is verses 8 through 21. Hear God's word. Oh, that I might have my request and that God would fulfill my hope, that it would please God to crush me, that he would let loose his hand and cut me off. This would be my comfort. I would even exult in pain unsparing, for I have not denied the words of the Holy One. What is my strength that I should wait, and what is my end that I should be patient? Is my strength the strength of stones, or is my flesh bronze? Have I any help in me when resource is driven from me? He who withholds kindness from a friend forsakes the fear of the Almighty. My brothers are treacherous as a torrent bed, as torrential streams that pass away, which are dark with ice and where the snow hides itself. When they melt, they disappear. When it is hot, they vanish from their place. The caravans turn aside from their course. They go up into the waste and perish. The caravans of Tima look. The travelers of Sheba hope. They are ashamed because they were confident. They come there and are disappointed. For you have now become nothing. You see my calamity and are afraid. Have I said, make me a gift or from your wealth offer a bribe for me? Or deliver me from the adversary's hand? Or redeem me from the hand of the ruthless? It's normal to want relief. It's normal to seek relief from pain and sorrow. And there is a lot of pain and sorrow in life, if we are honest. We live in a world marked by, as our confession says, sin and misery. And we can sense that Things are not right in so many ways, which is why we find ourselves longing uh, from time to time uh, for for things to be better. When we are experiencing pain in our bodies, that pain doctors tell us is a signal that something is not right. Some part of our body is being harmed, that something is out of balance. And sometimes that pain can be overwhelming where all we think about is wanting it to stop. And so we take pills and we get shots and we do prescribed exercises and we may change our diets. We undergo treatments and therapies and the goal is to get at uh, the cause, ideally, or at least the symptoms of the pain. I'm thinking that we can all agree that the normal reaction to pain is wanting to be rid of it. And thankfully, one of the promises regarding heaven is that there, there will be no more pain. There's also emotional pain. When we are experiencing the emotional pain of the heart and soul, like with physical pain, often all we can think about is wanting relief. Whether we we feel sad, depressed, lonely, discouraged, angry, frustrated, covetous, greedy, jealous, stressed out, or hateful. We don't like feeling these ways. And things are out of sorts, and we want to be able to feel happy, and so we resort to all kinds of different strategies to feel better, some of which are biblical, 
like filling our minds with the truths of God's word. Perhaps we need to be reconciled with God and with man, which requires humility, where we confess our sins and make amends. Uh, ultimately looking to God for the healing of the soul. And uh, we can find in him alone that which will satisfy our inner longings. That's a good strategy. Some of the strategies for dealing with emotional struggles are not biblical. Where people turn to chemicals, they turn to entertainment, as really means of distraction from what is bothering them. And uh, thankfully, another one of the promises regarding heaven is that it is a place where there are no more tears, there, there's no more mourning, there's no more crying. All of the pain of life is gone. But let it be said that this is true only for the believer who goes to heaven, which is a way of saying that unbelievers will not go to heaven at death, or if the Lord is to return first which is a way of saying that not all who die will experience the blessing of having pain and tears taken away. So that death is not the automatic solution to life's problems, as many imagine. I think most people believe in some form of life after death. They think at least there's a good possibility it will happen. And so when someone is in in intense physical or emotional pain, there is a tendency to think about death and even to long for death as a way to end the pain of this life. But they need to think through the possibility that on the other side of death, there may be even more pain. Death is a blessing only for believers. It's only through faith in Jesus Christ that the sting of death is gone. It's only through Christ that there is victory over death. And Meanwhile, let it be said very clearly that we are to leave the timing of our deaths to God. But that doesn't mean that in the midst of intense pain, we can't long for that pain to end, and perhaps even to long for death. But just so we leave the when and how of our deaths to God. Job was in the situation where life had become so painful, he longed for death. When Job first spoke after the arrival of his friends, he spoke of how he wished he hadn't been born or that he had died as an infant, or that he could die now as an adult. He saw leaving this life as a blessing. By the way, it is a testimony to his faithfulness and to his godliness that he did not take matters into his own hands. But he simply talks about how it was, in his, in his opinion, it would be a relief if God would grant him death. Well, now in chapter 6, verses 8 through 13, Job brings up the subject of death once again. And following the three-word outline of Ash's commentary, we have in these verses 8 through 13, the request, the reason, and the urgency. So Job begins there in verse 8, Oh, that I might have my request. So there's something that Job wants God to fulfill And as we think about what Job might want God to give him, we might easily imagine him wanting his children back. But of course, that's not going to happen. We might expect Job to ask for restoration of his wealth. But it's hard to work and especially to enjoy one's work when a person is alone or when one has poor health. And so perhaps he he will ask for healing of his body, but then... He will be left to go on living a life full of loss, a life in which it seems God has left him or worse, has come against him. And so then as we think about Job's situation, 
it's hard to predict what he's going to request, but I think we can understand him requesting what we know he's already thought about, which is the benefits of dying and leaving this life. But what we don't expect him to say, and we find surprising here, is to hear Job say that his hope, he uses that that wording, that his hope is that God would crush him, that he would let loose his hand and cut him off. It's one thing to die in one's sleep. It's another thing to ask for a violent death, and apparently the word here for crush is a violent word resonant with cruel beatings and even trampling to death. Expression for being cut off brings to mind a thread on a loom being snipped off, and so Job clearly believes that it would be as nothing for God to kill him, just like cutting a thread. Job feels miserable, and the request is rather simply that God will bring his struggle to an end by just crushing him and in that way finishing him off. That's his hope. That's his request. And in verse 10, Job gives the reason for why he makes this request, and the reason is one of comfort. That's how, we, that's how he words it, and upon hearing that, we naturally think that he must be referring to the comfort of being set free from the suffering of this life. But then he remarks, I would even exult in pain unsparing. And uh, that word exult, that's really a guess of, in, in our translations based more on the sense of the sentence because the meaning of the Hebrew word is unknown. But it seems that Job is saying that he doesn't care if his death is a painful one. His concern is apparently not over how he might die. He doesn't care what is involved in meeting the goal of leaving this world. His perspective is even that if, if he has to endure agonizing pain in order to die, it's going to be worth it. This hardly sounds like a request for something that we would call comforting, which then leads us to contemplate what is Job saying here in verse 10. Let's, let's study this verse carefully. Let's read the entirety of the verse as we contemplate why Job wants to die and what is the nature of the comfort that he seeks. He says, this would be my comfort. I would even exult in pain unsparing, for I have not denied the words of the Holy One. So his concern is that he might possibly deny the words of his God. So far, he has not done that. Remember, he has not cursed God. He hasn't turned away from God. He has not denied his beliefs in God, in God's sovereignty, in God's wisdom, even in God's goodness. Now, he has struggled to understand God's ways. And yet, through it all, he has maintained his faith in God. His comfort then has to do with how his death will keep him from denying the words of the Holy One. What Job is describing is the comfort of knowing that his death will mean the end of his struggle with sin. What is very comforting for Job to think about is his being able to die knowing that he has remained faithful to God right up until the very end. The situation has been described as something like a persecuted Christian who was undergoing torture and who fears that at any moment he may break and may end up denying his Savior. He would rather die before that happens. He would rather die knowing that he had not betrayed his faith. Job shows himself to be a very godly man by this perspective and attitude, which reminds us we need to be thinking about how we can glorify God in all of life, including in our deaths. And you should be viewing your death from a Christian, Christ-centered perspective that at death, your pilgrimage will be complete 
At your death, you will be able to move on to better things. At death, the fight of faith has come to an end, and it is a fight. It's over. That's a blessing. The race is over. The battle finished. There should be a certain relief and joy as you think about the spiritual benefits of death. And if you can approach death with faith and joy, you glorify Christ by showing that you trust in his victory over death, that this is real. It's real for you. Now, we don't know how we're going to die, but I think all of us have imagined various scenarios. And perhaps you have pictured yourself dying in a hospital bed. And I hope that you have thought about what it means to die well. To die as a person of faith, as a person of integrity. To die as a person witnessing to the power of the gospel. I have in mind certain heroes of the faith who as they were dying were powerful witnesses to the grace of God. I'm thinking of those who spoke of Christ even as they were being executed for being a Christian. I'm thinking of those who there in their hospital beds dying of some terminal disease were speaking to the staff of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm talking about Christians who have faced death with hope and even with joy. And I want to be thinking like Job in relation to death, Lord, thank you that soon I don't have to worry about falling into sin anymore. And thank you for the sins that you have spared me from. I wanted to be able to come to the end of my life as a person of integrity who honors you, and soon I'm not going to be able to sin anymore in some moment of weakness. It won't even be possible. I won't even have to worry about grieving you, my Savior, any longer. I thank you that you have forgiven the sins that I've committed, and I certainly recognize my utter need for your grace. I'm not talking about trusting in any good I have done. You have enabled me to do any good that has happened in my life. I know that my righteousness is not my own, so all I can do is to thank you, God, for your work in my life. I thank you for giving me a new heart. I thank you for giving me your word and spirit. I thank you that through your grace uh, you've spared me from so many sins. And yet I am aware, Lord, of the weakness that is yet within me. And that as long as I remain in this life, the potential is there for me to fall into sin that I will regret. And so thank you, Lord, for bringing closure through death with my struggle with sin. It's another illustration I would have you consider a faithful pastor being diagnosed with terminal cancer. And picture him upon hearing his diagnosis giving a sigh of relief that he's soon going to be able to leave this life without discrediting his ministry by doing something that would result in him being deposed from ministry. And if you know yourself as you ought, you know that you are capable of any sin. But when once death comes, the door is shut to any more sin. That's the comforting thing about death that Job sought. And there's an urgency to this request because, you see, Job is at the end of himself. He is so stretched emotionally, spiritually, physically, he's afraid of what he might do to displease God. Notice verses 11 through 13 where he says, What is my strength that I should wait? What is my end that I should be patient? Is my strength the strength of stones or is my flesh bronze? Have I any help in me when resource is driven from me? Having heard what Eliphaz has said about 
God is going to turn things around for you, Job. That's what he does for those who are faithful. I believe Job thought about that. Job considered the possibility, yeah, maybe that will happen. But until then, Job has to wait. And his perspective is he doesn't have the strength to wait. He doesn't have the endurance. He doesn't feel to hang on until that day comes. And it doesn't seem worth it. And really, it's not even a matter of what Job prefers. He knows he isn't strong. He's he's not as strong as stone or bronze, which he figures that's what's needed. He's only flesh. He's only flesh and blood and nerves. I think the expression that we use today that says virtually the same thing is, I am a man and not a machine. You can't just keep going and going and going without rest like a machine. You need breaks. There's a limit to what you and I can accomplish, a limit to our endurance. And Job was very conscious of being at a breaking point. And talking to himself and about himself, he remarks, have I any help in me when resource is driven from me? So there are times when life becomes stressful and overwhelming and we wonder, do we have what is in us that is necessary for us to push through? There are times when, to use the language of the King James, we have to gird up our loins in order to move ahead. And this means setting aside our feelings and despite great discomfort and personal sacrifice, do what needs to be done. But there are situations when there's nothing left in our reserves. We may want to move forward, but we're tired, we're exhausted, we feel like we can't do it. Job doesn't feel like he can wait until the Lord decides to restore him. Who knows how long that will be? And if Job is currently at the breaking point, tomorrow may be too long to wait. That's his perspective. There are a couple of points to be made by way of application. What comes to mind, first of all, is that we never have the inner resources to face life if we're talking about our own inner resources apart from the strength that God provides in his grace. Um, I can imagine someone saying to Job, Job, it's okay that you don't have the inner resources to face your future. God will provide. Any strength we have has always come from him anyway. Not just when we are struggling, but always we have to rely on God. And when we do, he shows himself faithful. Furthermore, it's actually when we are weak that God shows himself strong in our behalf. He is pleased to be a giver of his strength to the weak. His grace is sufficient to meet our every need. Job, you need to hold on and trust that God will enable you to to persevere. He will preserve you in your faith. Along these lines, we have the words of 1 Corinthians 10, 13, where we are told that God will never tempt us. He will never test us above what we are able to handle. He always provides a way of escape, we are told, which means that there are always resources from God that are available. It's up to us to make use of them. So that point, I believe, is well taken. But let's not misapply these principles to Job. Job is not here giving God an ultimatum. He isn't telling God to take him from this life before it's too late because he is going to give up his faith. Job is simply speaking of his experience and of the reality that many of us have experienced where God tests us to the limit of our endurance. What we are going through seems to be beyond bearing. And Job is pleading with God to just take him out because he doesn't feel like he can keep going 
His fear is that he will do something foolish, that he will do something sinful in a moment of weakness. So to summarize, Job is in verses 8 through 13 requesting God to grant him death so that he can leave this life while still a man of integrity. And the urgency is that he is in a very weakened state physically and spiritually. He wants to die before he ends up doing something that he will regret. He wants to die well. Which brings us then to the next section of verses 14 through 30, where Job is expressing disappointment in his friends. And again, to borrow Ash's outline, we have in verse 14 a responsibility, in verses 15 through 21 an illustration, and in verses 22 through 30 a request. We're not going to get to that this morning, that third point, but we are going to be looking at the responsibility that's laid out in verse 14, and then this illustration that is given in verses 15 through 21. So looking at responsibility, Job is disappointed by the lack of love that his friends have shown him. The ESV has the word kindness, and the word here is the word kesed, which is the Hebrew biblical word for covenantal love, and it's usually used in connection with God's love, his special love toward his people. The word kesed is often used in the Psalms, and an example of that would be in Psalm 51, verse 1, where David says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. And so there the words steadfast love translate the word word kesed, which is the same word translated as kindness in Job 6, verse 14. And what we see very clearly from Psalm 51.1 is that kesed is that special love of God that compels him to be merciful to his people, compels him to be merciful to us by blotting out our sins. It is the covenantal love that sent Jesus to the cross. It's a love manifested by Christ on the cross dying for us. It is a sacrificial love. It is a faithful, loyal love. And it is a practical love that sympathizes with those who are experiencing the trouble of sin and acts to bless them. And so it is that the blessings of Kessid love are primarily spiritual and the kesed of God is to mark our lives in our relationships with fellow believers. We are to love them. We are to love one another because of the common bond that we share with one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. Our love toward one another should be marked by loyalty. It should be marked by a willingness to love each other sacrificially. It should be a love that places a priority on each other's spiritual well-being. And Job says that to deny a friend this covenantal kindness, this covenantal love is to forsake the fear of the Almighty. This is the love that Job says has been lacking in his friends toward him. And he goes on to give an illustration of how they have treated him. He says his friends are like desert wadis. They are like these torrential stream beds that at various times have water but more often than not disappoint the thirsty. In the winter, some of these stream beds will have ice and snow accumulated in them, but if the weather warms up at all, that snow and ice melt and just they disappear into the parched ground. Or likewise, when the weather gets hot, any water that may have been flowing in these streams from a recent rainfall, that water just dries up. 
And so Job describes what must have been the common experience of caravans of traders, whether from Tima or Sheba. They're traveling these large distances in this desert environment, and it must have been a regular problem for them to run out of drinking water. And the scenario that Job describes is a group of travelers remembering from either a previous trip or perhaps they talked to some local, and so they know about some stream that's just a few miles off of their course. And so they make the, do, the detour with the hope that they will find water, but what do they find? They find a bone-dry stream bed. And they end up ashamed, not in the sense of blushing, but in the sense of being mistaken in their hopes. They were confident that they were going to find water, but they end up disappointed, and they end up actually dead. Verse 18, they perish. Their mistaken expectation has dire consequences. And Job is giving this scenario as an illustration of what his friends are like to him. They're coming to visit. They're coming to offer comfort. It just seemed so promising. Job had expectations that they would be a great help, that their words would be like refreshing water to a desert traveler. Instead, he says, verse 21, you have, become, you have now become nothing. For Job, their words have been empty. They have been utterly devoid of any comfort and any help. And he's saying that this is not simply an innocent failure on their part, that they have acted sinfully. They have mistreated him. He says that their treatment of him is a forsaking of the fear of God. They are not reverencing God. They are not obeying God like they should in treating him the way they have. Because God's people, touched by his kessed love, they show kindness to fellow believers when they are suffering. Job goes on to explain what's going on. He says in verse 21b, For you see my calamity and are afraid. We need to spend a little bit of time evaluating that, what that means. You see my calamity and are afraid. It's a curious thing to say. We wonder what he means. What is the nature of his friend's fear as he sees it? And commentators give various perspectives. Ash, in his commentary, says this, Job's friends are frightened by the terrible suffering they see before them. That's true, right? We can be so shocked by what a friend is going through as we see them perhaps in terrible misery. We're paralyzed about what to say and do. And while we would hope that we'd be able to rise above such fears and provide comfort, it's hard to imagine Job calling that kind of fear a forsaking of the fear of the Almighty. So I think we need to look in a different direction. Hanko, in his commentary, says, Job's friends are afraid to face the fact that God afflicted Job for no discernible reason. It's certainly possible for us to be afraid to face facts that don't line up with our current beliefs. That could be sinful. We must humbly acknowledge that we don't know everything, and this could be part of the sinful response of Job's friends as as Job sees it, but I don't think it's the entire problem. Belcher, in his commentary, says Job's friends are afraid of his situation and so have not known how to respond. Well, not knowing how to respond doesn't sound like something sinful that Job would strongly condemn. Anderson says they are afraid of getting too involved with someone they believe to be under the displeasure of God. And that's an assessment that I agree with. I think this is really getting at the heart of the problem. 
And the idea is that if Job's friends get too involved with Job in a loving way, they're going to be admitting he deserves empathy and sympathy. They're afraid of what kind of statement they're going to be making, what kind of reputation they will have in the eyes of those in the community who are watching. And this is because they believe Job is under the curse of God's displeasure. They are afraid that if they show this cursed man any sympathy, it's going to mar their reputation. And that it could be taken by God himself as an indication that they're not taking Job's sin seriously. They're afraid of how their interactions with Job are going to affect them. And this fear then is preventing them from, care for, uh, from caring for Job like true Christian friends should. That kind of response, if that is indeed what's happening here, is ungodly and unloving. And the same perspective is seen today when Christians don't want to interact with sinners. In some cases, not at all. And in other cases, in a way devoid of love and sympathy. Let's say that Job had sinned against God. And that what he was experiencing was God's hammer of justice coming down on him as punishment or chastisement. Now that's not what was happening. We know that because God has told us. But let's say that that was happening for the sake of argument. Should Job be shown no sympathy? When we see people falling into sin and suffering the consequences of sin, sometimes that's clearly what's happening. What should be our perspective? What should be our response? Should we be glad? Yeah, they're getting the hammer of God's justice coming down. Should we tell them they deserve what's happening? Should we tell them the only way they can expect things to turn around is if they will repent and start doing what is right? My response to that, would, to that kind of response would be that that's not acting like Christ, and it's not correctly representing the gospel either. The gospel accounts tell us that Jesus often interacted with sinners. And yes, he was not afraid of telling sinners that they are sinners, but he was also not afraid to hang out with them and to show himself to be their friend. He was not afraid of his reputation being tarnished in the eyes of the Pharisees who thought it was wrong for any righteous person to eat and to spend time with such sinners. Jesus lovingly interacted with the downcast and the outcasts of society despite the criticism that he received. His approach to people who needed his forgiveness was sympathy mixed with a call to repentance. What we must never tell sinners or give the impression to them is that if they will just get their act together, then God will love them and then we will love them. What we ought not to do is in the meantime be afraid to be around them. Maybe we are afraid that they're going to take our friendliness the wrong way as though we don't take their sin seriously. Maybe we are afraid that they will take our love as a condoning of their sin. That is not the gospel. The gospel is God setting his love on people who don't deserve it. It is showing people consideration and mercy and loving them while enemies of God. The gospel is not God blessing sinners after they get their acts together. The gospel is God loving, is God loving sinners while they are ungodly. Which means that we should be loving toward people who we have evaluated as being far from God. I'm talking about basing our evaluation on what they're saying, what they are doing. 
We should be friendly. We should be considerate. We should be sympathetic. We should weep with those who weep. We should rejoice with those who rejoice, even as we tell them of God's love for sinners that compelled the Father to send his Son to die for people like them. We should explain that the goal of Christ's coming was not to reward with salvation the ones who have turned from their sin and begun to obey God. No one can earn salvation by repentance and obedience. The goal that Jesus had in coming to earth was to die for sinners like you and me and through his death on the cross to pay the penalty that God's law says we deserve for our sins. And the goal of Christ has always been to give grace to lost sinners so that as a result of that grace, there's repentance and there's faith. It's worked in them by his grace. It is then through that repentance and faith, which have been granted as gifts of grace, that they are forgiven, they are blessed. And the point is that love and grace come before the change. Job's friends believe that Job has sinned greatly against God and that he deserves what's happening. What should be their approach? Sympathy and reminding him of God's love for sinners. They should not be afraid to spend time with a sinner and be friendly to a sinner. They should view him as a real person. And if they are people filled with God's kessed, they will do what they can to help Job spiritually, which means that they are going to need to stop beating around the bush about his need to repent if that's what they really believe needs to happen for his good, which that is what they believe. But they won't do it. It's all these innuendos, all of these hidden accusations. If they really believe he needs to repent, then tell him that. They also, they will also, if they really love him, listen to him. And they'll give him a chance to explain himself and try to understand his position. And they will be inclined to believe him as a true Kessid-filled friend would do. Because you see, we should regard a professing believer as fallen after only the most careful of investigations and evaluations. And even if that is the conclusion, love should not end there. It should continue to characterize all ongoing interactions with the goal that the sinner will turn and be forgiven. Love doesn't jump to unfounded conclusions about a person's relationship with God. And so may God enable us to be true friends, true friends who show the love of Jesus to those around us who need it. Amen. Let us pray. God and Father, we do thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ and for his love for sinners. We thank you for your kessed love, this covenantal love that reaches out to the lost and to the ungodly and draws us into your fellowship. Father, we recognize we do not deserve your love. We recognize that we have not earned it. And Lord, we pray that that same gracious love would characterize our interactions with others, especially our brothers and sisters in Christ. That, Lord, we would be sympathetic and understanding and that we would be people who come graciously, reminding each other of the love that you have for sinners, a love that is not earned, but a love that's received. Lord, may we be good friends. May we be good representatives of the Lord Jesus Christ and how we, we interact with those who, in some cases, really are terrible sinners. 
And uh, Lord, may we be loving toward them, truthful but loving. And we pray that especially with fellow believers that we would be inclined to believe that they are continuing to trust you and to believe in you but are just struggling. So Lord, give us wisdom, give us love. We pray these things in Jesus' name.